been a ho-hum week in the news, not much to talk about this morning. <laughs> it's a privilege and an honor, as always, to be preaching at Second Presbyterian. Um, our New Testament lesson is from Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. Familiar verses, timely verses. May we hear them with fresh ears. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Why did each of us get up and come to church this morning? Force of habit certainly played a role. Sunday rolled around and we all put on more formal attire and we drove downtown. This is a regular ritual for most of us. If not a weekly one, then at least something we do regularly enough that coming to 5 North 5th Street does not involve a great deal of conscious thought. Let's mind beneath the surface understanding of our decision to be present this morning and ask a deeper question. What is our reason for being people of faith? Why do we believe? Why are we Christians? In answering this question, we might immediately remember the influence of parents and of pastors, of church communities past and present that sustained us, especially during difficult times. That's certainly the case for me as I think about the formative influence of early mentors. Not long ago, several members of Second Presbyterian Church describe important Christmases from their early years. And those present were all moved by the vivid memories that came flooding back and the significance of past episodes for faith formation. I want to press this point a bit further in many churches right now, congregates are hearing more fire and brimstone than I'm going to offer this morning or than Alex and Catherine typically preach from this pulpit. The message in many churches today is you must do and say this, or you better do that because if you do not, then eternal damnation awaits. If you flip around the radio or television dial this afternoon, you will hear plenty of warnings about the devil the need to profess belief in God, warnings about ending up what we in our household sometimes referred to as H-E double hockey sticks. That's Charlie's phrase. Over the last few days, I have listened to sermon snippets of well-known preachers in American public life whose theological framework is predicated on warning people about eternal punishment. 
In our tradition and at this church, we don't spend a lot of time worrying or warning about this topic. Not because we are indifferent to the ultimate destiny that awaits each of us, but because we do not occupy ourselves too much with what is God's ultimate choice for our lives. One of the reasons we are sometimes jokingly referred to as the frozen chosen is because we believe that God is totally in charge of everything that occurs and it's not our place to decide the salvific destiny of ourselves or our neighbors. Nor do we spend a lot of time with feel-good pop psychology. There are plenty of churches where taking charge of your life and reaping the rewards of faithfulness are the prevailing topics where the nuts and bolts of the sermon do not stretch beyond a cheesy self-help book that you might find at the end of the aisle or the airport terminal. Of course, there's nothing wrong with focusing on spiritual growth in the context of self-improvement, and truth be told, we could probably stand to pay closer attention to spiritual formation in our Presbyterian churches. But the syrupy pop psychology that characterizes a great deal of contemporary Christian discourse It's not a preoccupation here. The belief that piety or good behavior will lead to overflowing material blessing is not something you will hear from this pulpit or the vast majority of Presbyterian churches. We are not adherents to the prosperity gospel. So we're very good about talking about what we don't profess. Yet as my colleague at the seminary, John Vest, often reminds me, we're far less skilled at talking about our central mission. We're much better at talking about what we don't believe than what we do believe. This is to our detriment in terms of growing the church, for unless we can be clearer about the central and abiding reason for being a community of faith in a way that is both authentic and inviting, I fear the PCUSA will continue to struggle. Christianity and individual congregations have to be more than a weekly space for social gathering among a group of somewhat like-minded people. So why do we come? There's only one answer to this question. We come here to serve Jesus Christ, who alone is head of the church. We come to give glory and honor to God and to remind ourselves that Jesus, through his life and works, calls us into a new way of being in the world. We believe that God made God's self known through this itinerant carpenter preacher from Galilee. And our most important calling is to promote the teachings of Jesus and the reign of God inaugurated by his ministry. So Jesus calls us into a new way of being. Our brief statement of faith declares Jesus proclaimed the reign of God, preaching good news to the poor, release to the captives, teaching by word and deed and blessing the children, healing the sick, binding up the brokenhearted, eating with outcasts, forgiving sinners, and calling all to repent and believe the gospel. This language draws directly from the content of the New Testament as Jesus ministered and preached good news to the poor, released to the captives, and ate with outcasts. This morning's lectionary passages comprise two of the most familiar and important declarations in all of Scripture. The prophet Micah's description of a lawsuit between God and the people and the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. We could spend two months 
going through Micah 6 and the Sermon on the Mount and not cover the same subject twice. This is foundational material, providing the answer to my original question, why do we come here? This morning, I just want to focus on two verses. The first is from Micah 6.8, language familiar to us. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? This declaration is not about being nice and courteous. In order to understand the prophet's message here, historical context is critical. Micah lived in Judah during the 8th century B.C. when the world was an unstable place. Economic stratification was intense. Political parties were fighting against each other, and people were uncertain about what tomorrow would bring. Refugees were pouring in from other countries, and there was great consternation about who was in and who was out. Chaos was the norm of the day. Sound familiar. Elsewhere in the book, the prophet rails against evildoers, those who oppress the poor and vulnerable simply because they're able to do so. Alas for those who devise wickedness and evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in their power. They covet fields and seize them, houses and take them away. They oppress householder and house people and their inheritance, Micah 2. Let's not water down the prophet's message here with wishy-washy declarations about being nice to each other. According to Micah, the first requirement from the Lord is to do justice. Hebrew, asot mishpat. The Hebrew word for justice here is mishpat. And in the Old Testament, it doesn't simply mean fairness. Justice in the Bible means kindness to the poor, special attention to those who are most vulnerable, and active engagement in one society. Micah and the other prophets encourage not just being kind, but egalitarian social structures that prevent corruption, poverty, and yes, mistreatment of foreigners. The justice imperative that Micah passed on lifts up the poor as needing protection in a world that tends to keep them on the sideline. Dr. King referred repeatedly in his writings to prophets like Micah and Amos, calling them extremists for justice. In his letter from a Birmingham jail, which he addressed to fellow clergymen, white Protestants sitting on the sidelines during the civil rights movement, Dr. King lamented their reticence in criticizing systemic injustices that were clearly present. He expressed his frustration with those who didn't want to offend anyone who favor order to justice, who prefer a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. My friends, we find ourselves at a moment where order is winning over justice, where a negative peace is prevailing over a positive peace, where fear is having its way over solidarity. To seek justice in the manner called upon by Michael, Micah requires each of us to think about what it means to be a Christian, what it means for each of us to do justice in our own way at an extremely volatile moment in our nation's history. Maybe a concrete example would help before I jump to the present. For those of you who do not know or need a reminder, 
In the 1970s, the Nestle Company was marketing a milk formula that led to tragic health problems for children, especially in developing countries. The water in many countries was not suitable for mixing with formula, and children were being exposed to contaminated milk and an array of diseases. Despite persistent pleas from a variety of health experts, Nestle continued to market this powdered formula. And then along with other organizations, the Presbyterian Church joined a boycott and did so with vigor. I still remember my Sunday school teachers and my mother telling us we couldn't eat Nestle Crunches or Mr. Good Bars. My friends at school thought it was crazy that the Presbyterians in our class had never eaten a Toll House cookie. By the mid-1980s, Nestle quit peddling the formula and the boycott was lifted. As you all know, very well, we Presbyterians can be plotting and overly obsessed with bureaucracy. Doing things decently and in order can actually mean doing things club-footed and with much hand-wringing over minutia that doesn't really matter. When it comes to collective social witness like the Nestle boycott, sometimes our churches get it right. Such actions seek to model, however imperfectly, the example our Savior taught us, that we should never be satisfied with an unfair status quo, especially one that perpetuates injustice to those on the margins. Social justice is not some meaningless label, but an obligatory aspect of what it means to be a Christian, and now the stakes are as, as high as they've ever been in my lifetime. In his very first public utterance, Jesus echoes Micah's call in the Sermon on the Mount. I want to focus on just one of the verses here in Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. What does it mean to be a peacemaker from the vantage point of Jesus' message, his first public utterance in the Sermon on the Mount? As with Micah, peacemaking does not simply involve being nice to everyone, but seeking neighborhoods, nations, and an entire world where unity triumphs over division, where solidarity triumphs over polarization. There are political implications to this declaration as Jesus and his early followers lived in the context of imperial Rome. Jesus and the first disciples were a small minority in a backwater province of a great empire, and yet they changed the world through their insistence on justice. If God is the ultimate peacemaker, then it was also incumbent upon the first disciples to be agents of change in a dangerous, uncertain context. Peacemaking, according to the Sermon on the Mount, involves risk-taking. As New Testament scholar Hans Dieter Betz explains, the Sermon on the Mount recognizes human sinfulness and the inevitability of war, political division, and persecution. Peacemaking requires taking chances in moments of perceived powerlessness and demonstrating the conviction that in the end, God's kingdom will prevail. Such a bold assertion by Jesus at the outset of his ministry demonstrates a truth of the Christian message. The gospel is political. We cannot deny the political implications of the Sermon on the Mount and what they require of us. 
Service to the kingdom of God necessitates peacemaking. So now we arrive at an inevitable and difficult point both today and in the coming days of what these passages mean for us with so many changes happening in our nation, seemingly by the hour. If you're like me, this past week you finished a meeting or a meal and turned on the TV or computer to find out what seismic event has happened over the last 45 minutes. Executive orders on border walls, bans on immigration and refugees, many of whom have families here and are fleeing certain death in their native countries, and the health care of many of the poorest among us in jeopardy. Since we come from the tradition of John Calvin, it's hardly a coincidence that the words of Micah and the Sermon on the Mount are the lectionary passages for us today. The Holy Spirit is at work. Pastors around the world did not have to go looking for what scripture to choose. Do justice. Blessed are the peacemakers. Today, we unapologetically and proactively declare what it means to be a Christian and why we are here to seek justice and to be agents of Christian reconciliation in a world and a nation that seems more fractured than at any moment in recent memory. We stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us in this pursuit, those who have bravely modeled what justice entails, early saints of the church who risked persecution and martyrdom to stand up for the message of Jesus, later figures like Dorothy Day, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and Martin Luther King Jr. We stand on the shoulders of more recent leaders in our Presbyterian context, People like Al Wynn and Randy Taylor who were not afraid to take a stand for peacemaking during the civil rights movement. All of these individuals took risks with the understanding that Micah and the Sermon on the Mount do not allow us to remain silent when injustice is occurring. In order to live into these prophetic mandates, we cannot tiptoe around some undeniable truths. Jesus and his family were themselves refugees who went to Egypt to escape persecution. Jews in the ancient world were always required to welcome the stranger. Not just to be nice, but to allow the resident alien, the one sojourning in the land, the individual with her or his green card, to be a full-fledged part of the community. This is the Adams translation of Leviticus 19.34 a verse we might all put on our refrigerators for the next few months. The resident alien shall be a full-fledged citizen to you. The resident alien shall be a full-fledged citizen to you, for you yourselves were resident aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Everyone immigrated at one time or another. Our tradition of peacemaking and justice-seeking requires us to follow the lead of our Creator who takes special care for the stranger among us. When Jesus describes the final judgment scene in Matthew 25, it's not theological beliefs or denominational affiliation that will determine one's ultimate destiny but care for those on the margins. I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. 
These words on justice and peacemaking are often lost in an effort not to offend anyone. As Jim Wallace explains, when we ignore the social witness of Micah and Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, I quote, we reduce Christianity to a small s spirituality that is really only ad hoc wish fulfillment or a collection of little self-help techniques we use to take the edge off our materialistic rat race lives. The gospel is political. Justice and peacemaking do not us to allow us to waffle on the acceptability of a ban on immigration that separates families from their loved ones and discriminates on the basis of race and religion. Justice and peacemaking do not allow us to be silent on the question of whether or not we should strive to make certain that the poor among us in Richmond and elsewhere have basic access to health care. Not just those who need access to Medicaid, but poor families whose access to catastrophic health coverage is now very much in doubt. Justice and peacemaking do not allow us to be indifferent to the polarization of our national landscape in recent months. Jesus' message is a political one, and the peacemaking element requires us to be bridge builders, agents of reconciliation in a world that desperately needs hope and constructive change. This is not about partisanship or who won the latest jousting match on CNN or Fox News or who just posted the wittiest response on Twitter. Jesus doesn't care who is winning the Twitter wars when people are dying in Syria and right here in Richmond. Jesus does not care about the size of inaugural crowds, past or present, when 39% of children in Richmond are growing up in poverty. Jesus does not care about Senate filibuster rules when health care is not available to everyone in our affluent society. Back to our original question. Why do we come here? To be a community of faith that seeks justice. If we want Second Presbyterian to do what it does best, this is our current calling. We can surely disagree on some of the best policy prescriptions, but we cannot remain on the sidelines. The stakes are too high, and the gospel is too clear. Let us strive together to live out the mandate that Micah and Jesus have given us, to promote the kingdom of God to a world that is in desperate need of wholeness. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. May it be so. Amen. Let us pray. Merciful God, your prophets long ago called us to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with you. With humility, help us to be agents of change in our broken and fractured world. We Pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.